good to be here, especially on this feast day. And um, I'm also so thankful for uh, uh, an acquaintance who I hope becomes a friend over time named Joshua Haven, who's joining us today to preach um, and to, to um, encourage us with this message of the crucified king, the one who processes in. And Josh is a, um, a graduate of Redeemer Seminary uh, that was here in Dallas and is now Reformed Theological Seminary. Um, he is a, a doctor, a PhD in New Testament from Aberdeen. Um, he's in the process of discerning ordination in the Anglican Church in North America and is resident at Christ Church Plano. Um, he's got a wife and two kids um, and is a, a, a godly man. Um, he is a, a gentle and kind, but um, also wicked smart, and so you can't underestimate him. Uh, he's very humble uh, and would never say that about himself, but he uh, is, is incredible. So I'm excited to hear from him today. Um, so thank you, Josh. Please uh, come and bring the word to us today. Let us pray. Lord God Almighty, in, in the name of Jesus, I pray that the words in my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. On Monday of this past week, a tragic act of violence occurred against a Christian school and church in Nashville, Tennessee. Though I've not spoken with him in a number of years, Chad Scruggs is the pastor of that church at Covenant Presbyterian Church, and I got to know Chad pretty well when he was a pastor here in Dallas. I was at Park City's Presbyterian Church for a number of years and um, met with Chad pretty regularly in 2017 to 2018. He's a man I greatly respect. And this week in the aftermath of losing his nine-year-old daughter, Hallie, the full full public statement Chad released was, was the following. We are heartbroken. She was such a gift. Through tears, we trust that she is in the arms of Jesus who will raise her to life once again. The pain that he's enduring is unimaginable, and I'm not sure what, if anything, I could say, but I wanted to share his words with you this morning because they are words that emerge from the good news that God declares to us in Jesus Christ on Palm Sunday. This world is desperately in need of salvation. When we survey the wreckage of history, when we look at the failures in our own individual lives within, when we look at tragedies in the world without, this world looks like anything but a place that is ruled by a good king. But our king has come, and our king is coming to make all things new, who himself died and was raised again. He will raise us to life again as well. Though we do not now see all things in subjection to him, as Hebrews 2 says, we do see him who was raised from the dead, and we do pray Thy kingdom come, as we will later in this service. His kingdom is coming. It is not a project built by human schemes. It is God's kingdom, which we receive, and to which we are to testify in word and deed. In the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have seen the truth about this world. We have already heard the final word of history, and it is God's word of life, not sin, sorrow, and death. That paradox that Jesus is the resurrected king, whose divine power is displayed in human weakness and suffering, seen on the cross, is perfectly dramatized for us today on Palm Sunday. About 1,700 years ago, sometime between the years 381 and 384, there was a woman named Egeria who was from Spain and wrote some letters back home to her sisters after she traveled to Jerusalem. 
And her letters give us great insight into early Christian devotion. She writes that on Palm Sunday, at about the 11th hour, right now it is 1035, the passage from the gospel is read where the children carrying branches and palms met the Lord saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the bishop and the priests rise and all the people with them, and they all go on foot from the top of the Mount of Olives, all the people going before him with hymns and antiphons, answering one another, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And all the children in the neighborhood, as happened today, even those who are too young to walk, are carried by their parents on their shoulders, all of them bearing branches, some of palms and some of olives, and, and thus they are escorted in the same manner as the Lord was of old. Why have Christians celebrated Palm Sunday in this way for more than 1,600 years? Isn't this kind of a strange story? Jesus is welcomed in as king, and then a few days later, he is mocked and humiliated and tortured. There's a hint towards the answer in our church's prayer book. On the explanation about Palm Sunday, the prayer book notes that our worship service today has combined two ancient traditions in the church— one that is focused on Palm Sunday and Jesus coming in as king, and another that anticipates Jesus' sufferings and, and the passion that follows in the next week. Palm Sunday, though, is so simple that it is grasped well by little children waving palm branches, welcoming Jesus as king. It is also so profound that we will wonder and marvel at its depths for all of eternity. Palm Sunday is about the paradox of how the kingdom of God strangely comes into this world through the cross. God has revealed his saving power and wisdom, his restorative rule and reign over all of creation on the cross. Because in Christ, God has become human and took upon himself our weakness, suffering, and death, now we can become united with Christ and share in his incorruptible life and victory and reign. When Jesus came into Jerusalem for the final time, he came in humility to bring peace to his enemies and give righteousness to scoundrels, to me and to you. He came to restore humanity. Humanity was created to be God's royal representatives on earth, but instead we sought to usurp God's throne. And in the process, we immiserated ourselves and this world. But God has acted through the humiliation of Jesus Christ on the cross and his exaltation in the resurrection and ascension, God has established his saving and renewing reign on earth. And he invites us to come into that reign. He invites us into the world-scandalizing folly and weakness of the cross so that all those who are united by faith with Jesus Christ may follow him in the way of the cross in self-giving love to others that we might also share in his resurrection. And so in order to better appreciate the events of Palm Sunday, in order to better understand what's going on, why we walked in here with palms today, we need to understand a little bit more about how these events are part of a bigger story in the Bible. Or it might be better to say how these events give meaning and coherence to the whole story of the Bible. This story is for us, is about how God is for you, about how God is with us. But it's a story that's not ultimately about us. It's a story that's ultimately about Jesus Christ, a story that we are in Christ we're invited to become participants in, the true story of our world and our lives. The big story of the Bible begins with God, the God who spoke all things into existence out of nothing, bringing order, establishing his reign over the waters of creation over the, that were formless and void. 
In Genesis, the whole cosmos, the sun, the moon, the stars, the solar systems that new telescopes are, are discovering all the time, all of the creatures on earth, the land, the sea, the water, are described in Genesis in language evocative of a temple. This is the place where God reigns. This is the place where God has come to be present. And the crowning piece of a temple in the ancient world was to put an image of God in the temple. And the image of God that's placed on the temple of creation is human beings. We are created in God's image and given a specific job in Genesis 1.27 to have dominion. We're, we're to rule on God's behalf on earth, not tyrannically or exploitatively, but to care for creation in a way that leads for flourishing. Yet humanity rebelled, seeking to usurp God's throne, the gifts God gave us to reign on his behalf. We're corrupted and produced the mayhem of human history. Like Jared preached at this church last week, we sought to be free in an absolute sense, to be our own masters, to be only determined by ourselves, and in so doing, we became slaves, not knowing that that is a false freedom. We became enslaved to and ruled by our own desires and subject to the forces of entropy and violence in this world. Gregory of Nyssa, writing in the fourth century, explains this well, that humanity exchanged self-directing freedom for the wicked slavery of sin and chose to be tyrannized by the corrupting power rather than to serve God and be under God's reign. But God, being rich in mercy, did not abandon us to self-destruction and not merely rescued us from destruction. God determined to restore humanity to being his royal representatives on earth. And through God's good king, God would ultimately bring humanity and all of creation to the purpose creation was intended for. Namely, that God would be glorified by dwelling with us and we with him in his kingdom. This great story unfolds throughout the Old Testament and the history of Israel. God calls Abraham and makes covenantal promises to him and specifically promises, I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you, Genesis 17. In the book of Numbers, a non-Israelite, Balaam, probably not the best guy, prophesies that there's a coming victorious, triumphant king. A star shall come out of Jacob, he says. A scepter shall rise out of Israel to crush God's enemies, and he shall exercise dominion. There's language echoed from Genesis. God's ruler is going to come and restore humanity to be what it was meant to be, having dominion on earth on God's behalf. But after God delivers Abraham's children from slavery in Egypt, God makes a covenant with them at Mount Sinai and allows for them to have kings. The good king should abide in the word of God. But the tragic story of Genesis ends up repeating itself throughout Israel's history. And the book of Judges is particularly illustrative of what ails us even today. The stories in Judges are like a corkscrew. They follow a pattern and they just go deeper and further down every time. Judges seems, it can seem like an ancient book with nothing to do with the modern world. Who are these silly people who think they need a king? But it's actually quite postmodern. And Judges gives us a glimpse into a world where everyone defines their own moral norms. A refrain in the book is echoed in the closing words of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Far from a utopia, far from a place of freedom and goodness, the story just devolves into tyranny and chaos and destruction. And in the history relayed later, there is finally a good king given 
But even the best kings of Israel, even David, even Solomon, need redemption themselves. The worst kings in Israel's history wreak havoc. They, they commit unspeakable acts of evil. The people of God would ultimately see their kingdom torn in two, and one day their kings would go into exile because they were unfaithful to their covenant with God. Nevertheless, God remains faithful. He does not abandon his people, despite their infidelity, despite their failures. And the prophets, such as Malachi 1.14, God still announces, I am a great king. My name will be feared among the nations. Despite it all, God is still in charge of the universe, even in exile. Daniel records the pagan king Nebuchadnezzar after he's humbled, saying, talking about God, his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are as nothing. He does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. None can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Later in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel sees a vision of one like a son of man coming before God, coming before the ancient of days, and to him will be given a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. But we also begin to hear some really weird things in the prophets about this king and this coming kingdom. We hear in Isaiah God's king described as a servant, as we heard read today, suffering for others. What could this possibly mean? The Psalms are filled with this tension as well. Psalm 72 is, a, is primarily about God's good king, singing things like this, evocative of Genesis 1. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Long may he live. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him, and all nations call him blessed. Meanwhile, as our psalm for today relates from Psalm 22, we hear the cry of, of David, the king, forsaken by God, who suffers greatly at the hands of others. These tensions reach a breaking point later in the psalms, in places like Psalm 97, which announces, The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. God is king. There has never been a time when God did not rule heaven and earth. And yet, while all things were created good, they have gone awry because humanity is corrupted as God's royal representatives on earth. Nothing is how it's supposed to be. But God is coming to set the world to rights. So in Psalm 98, all of creation is exploding with the glory of God, with anticipation at the good news. God is coming to judge the world. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, and the world and all those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Are we sure that is good news? That God is coming to judge the world in righteousness? When we look in the mirror, when we look at our own lives with honesty, that God is coming to judge the world in righteousness can be dreadful. I am what's wrong with the world. You are what's wrong with the world. Will we be on the receiving end or the beneficiaries of the justice of God's coming kingdom? In our gospel reading from today, we, we heard a passage 
that's a difficult text, a weighty text. Jesus suffers. Earlier in Matthew's gospel, Matthew gives us a, a snapshot of Jesus as the Davidic king, the one who has come to bring the kingdom of heaven in the line of David. Jesus has taught about the kingdom. In Matthew 13, Jesus gives us all of these parables that are all about how the kingdom of God comes. It comes in a form that's present already in the person of Jesus himself, but it's hidden. It's like treasure buried in a field. It's like leaven that rises in bread and you don't know how it works. It's like a field where, where seeds that are good and weeds are growing together and it's only at the harvest they'll be separated. But when we come um, to this passage in, in Math, Matthew 27, it follows after the passage we read earlier from, Psalm 20, from, from Matthew 21, where Jesus has welcomed in his king. And Zechariah 9.9 was quoted, that Jesus would come riding on a donkey. When you go back and read it in Zechariah, the next verse, 9.10, it's clear what the, what the significance was of Jesus coming on a donkey. He came to bring peace to his enemies. Jesus didn't come in riding a war horse or a stallion. In the ancient world, when, someone rode on, when a king rode on a donkey, it signified he was coming in peace. The crowds went before him, were, were crying out in the words of Psalm 118, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But only a few chapters later, the story takes a strange turn. Jesus was bound. He was led away, rejected, mocked, tortured. He not only suffered a death that was extraordinarily painful physically, though certainly that is the case, he also suffered one of the most publicly humiliating and degrading deaths possible in an honor-shame culture in the ancient world. Many Jews and non-Jews were executed in the ancient world by crucifixion. This manner of death was especially used to discourage uprisings against the existing power structures of the world, especially the might of the Roman Empire. In the strange story Matthew tells of how God became king, we do not see in Matthew's gospel Jesus sitting on a throne, riding a horse into victory or battle, giving a great speech that wins huge applause from the world. Jesus cries out on the cross in the words of Psalm 22, a cry of God-forsakenness and dies. And yet, the weakness and folly of the cross is precisely where and how God reveals his saving power and wisdom. In Matthew's gospel, creation itself shudders, buckles, while God is on the cross. Midday turns pitch black, and the ground quakes. At this, Matthew says, when the centurion and those with him who were keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were terrified. And they said, truly this man was God's son. A centurion, a representative of the Roman Empire with all of its might, all of its prestige, all of its great storied history is undone by what he beholds on the cross. What did he see? Our epistle reading today from Philippians 2 unveils what was really there. Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, something to be exploited selfishly, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, 
so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is the crucified and risen King and he has come to make all things new. What kind of King is Jesus? In the words of Psalm 52, he is one who suffers in order to bring healing, forgiveness, and redemption to all of us who have gone astray. In the words of Psalm 22, he is one who screams out a cry of God-forsakenness. But Jesus also sings the rest of Psalm 22. He will yet sing the praises of the God who delivers in the congregation. In the words of Philippians 2, Jesus is the king who indeed was humbled and suffered in the most extreme ways possible, but who is also exalted as Lord of heaven and earth, Christ having shared in our condition that we might share in his, he having become our sin and died in our place that we might become his righteousness and share in his life. What does all of this have to do with us? What does the story of Palm Sunday have to do with us? I want to briefly suggest just three things. First, the bad news is that we are sinners and God has and is coming to set the world to rights. The good news is that God not only is coming as judge, but the one judged in our place, Jesus Christ himself, is reconciling all things to himself. And we can be reconciled to God if we are united with Christ himself. The epistle to the Romans explains this well. While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would be willing to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if we were, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Behold and marvel with me at how awesome our God is in an old sense of that word, that he comes to this world in both judgment and grace, kindness and severity. Second, the particular way God restored humanity as God's royal representatives on earth was through the way of the cross. In the person of Jesus Christ, who as the Nicene Creed teaches, is truly human and truly divine, humanity is freed from our servitude to sin, death, and the anti-God powers of this age. Through the work of the Holy Spirit, we can become united with Christ and thus be transformed to increasingly become more and more like Christ, especially in self-giving love. God has strangely restored humanity to be his kings and queens on earth through suffering and the cross, and now summons us to walk in that same humility towards others. Recently, historian Carl Truman spoke about a fundamental tension that probably many of us in this room can relate with. Everybody wants to be free. We have an intuitive desire to be free. On the other hand, we also intuitively know that we need to belong we need to have other people who acknowledge us as people of value in order for us to have self-worth. Freedom and belonging are very hard to tie together because to belong is to sacrifice freedom. To be free in an absolute sense is not to belong. How do we tie those things together? How do we cope with those things amidst the social fragmentation, the alienation and frustration of the modern world where people look to any number of objects and people as false kings that can rule us and set us free and make us belong. But there's only one king to whom we can truly be free. There's only one king in whom we can belong in such a way that nothing can ever be taken away from us. 
that is in Christ who calls us to follow, follow him in the way of the cross now. We will one day see him face to face and behold, behold his, him in glory. And that point, this is summarized well in today's collect where we prayed, Almighty and everlasting God, in your tender love for us, you sent your only son, Jesus Christ, to take upon himself our nature and to suffer death on the cross, giving us the great example of his humility. Mercifully grant that we, walking in the way of his suffering, may share in his resurrection. Through him who, to, to, through him who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, be honor and glory forever. That is a great prayer to pray this week, for something practical to do this week. Pray that prayer, that God would help you share in the way of suffering and also partake of his resurrection life and hope. Last, in Christ, God has the last word. Palm Sunday is a cause for hope. Our Savior King has come, and he is coming. History is not just matter in motion. Our lives are not a nihilistic power struggle. History, rather, is the drama of how God became king over this world in the crucified man from Nazareth and rescued it back from the annihilating forces of darkness. The sum of our lives is not our personal failures and frustrations. The sum of this world is not the chaos and carnage of history. The truth about this world is not reducible to what we presently experience in it. We have already seen the truth about this world that on Palm Sunday, Jesus has come to be the only king who can both set us free and help make us belong. And in his passion, death, and resurrection, the broken creation and our shattered lives become what we were meant to be. Listen with me to what Jesus says, ascended into heaven and now sitting on his heavenly throne in the book of Revelation. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. That is our king. For now, through tears, we trust that Jesus will raise us to life once again. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.